1: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
0: Get out! Come on!
1: We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast perched at the intersection of bio and tech. I'm Lauren Richardson, PhD, scientist, and former journal editor. This episode is a journal club, so the conversation will center around a recently published article from the scientific literature, its findings, implications, and the new opportunities it presents. Today, we're talking about sleep and how it is regulated in the brain. And historically, we've thought of sleep as the exclusive property of neurons and neuronal behavior. But my guest, Kira Piskanser, assistant professor at the University of California in San Francisco, and her group are showing that neurons are only one piece of the larger sleep puzzle. In their recent eLife article titled, Cortical Astrocytes Independently Regulate Sleep, Depth, and Duration via Separate GPCR Pathways, They uncover how astrocytes, another common brain cell type, control two key attributes of sleep—how long you sleep and how deeply. We discuss the complexity of sleep, the technology and methods they employed to uncover this novel mode of regulation, and how appreciating the role of astrocytes in governing sleep could lead to new insights into neuropsychiatric conditions and how to treat them we start with Kira describing the different phases of sleep. Sleep is not one thing. So one of the phases
1: during sleep is what we studied here, which is called non-REM sleep. And that's characterized by neurons all firing together and then not firing together. And this is what creates the rhythm that's characteristic of that non-REM sleep. So it's kind of population of cells sort of speaking together. Then during REM sleep, which stands for rapid eye movement, That actually, if you record the electrical activity during REM sleep, it looks very similar to wake. It sort of appears as if the brain is awake, although the body is paralyzed during that time. And so when we started reading about the sleep field, we saw some really great sleep deprivation papers from a long time ago, like 100 years ago where they sleep-deprived subjects for maybe four days, to so something that we wouldn't do today, and you can, <laughs> you can imagine feels terrible. And this showed for the first time that there was a separation of different features in sleep, sleep depth and duration, because after these four days of sleep deprivation, the subjects then went to sleep, and they didn't sleep that much longer. They slept much deeper, but they didn't sleep for four days straight. So this Mm -hmm. is the first demonstration that sleep depth and duration could be separable. It's just another point I want to make about what happens in the brain during sleep, that there's not only one thing. It's not like the whole brain is doing this at the same time. So some parts of the brain can be sort of sleepier or showing more of this slow wave activity, and some can be less sleepy in that way. And it looks like at various points in the night or in the sleep cycle, that different areas will sort of go in and out of different sleep depths differently. So one very open area is understanding this heterogeneity of these electrophysiological rhythms across the brain.
0: So like most studies of brains and neurobiology, the traditional focus has been on neurons, what they're doing, how they're connected. And your work is focused on this other cell type, astrocytes. So what are the key characteristics of astrocytes and why did you decide to focus your efforts on this cell type?
1: Yeah, the neurons show these very cool electrophysiological properties. They fire action potentials, which are thought to be sort of the code of the brain. And I think it's important and interesting to remember that neurons don't make up all the cells in the brain. All the cells that aren't neurons have historically been lumped together in this name called glia, which is Greek for glue, which I think tells you a little bit about how they've been perceived, which they're just sticking things together. And now we know that that's not true. And there are many classes of non-neuronal cells. The largest class are astrocytes. So they make up probably 25 to 30% of the brain. But what's, what makes them so fascinating to me is that there are these highly, highly branched cells that sort of poke into every kind of little space there is in the brain. And the space that I'm particularly interested in is into the synapse and sort of the action points between neurons. They have receptors for every kind of neurotransmitter that neurons have receptors for. So they can they can listen to that action between the cells. But because they don't fire these action potentials that neurons fire, first of all, they haven't been easy to study because some of the earliest ways we've studied how neurons work are just sticking electrodes in the brain and, and measuring the activity of neurons. And glia just don't, they don't speak the same language. But then they're coupled to each other in a a sort of very different way than neurons are. So they make this own their own kind of network because they're coupled, there's something called gap junctions, which means that there's sort of more one continuous sort of network than neurons which have to chemically talk from one cell to the other cell. So we still don't understand very much about this kind of interconnectedness, but I think of them more like a whole blanket on top of lots mm. of the neurons in the mm-hmm. brain because if they could they have the ability to sort of pass signals, within their own networks, but also they're morphologically right at those points where neurons are making decisions about how to talk to each other. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. they have this potential to be a totally separate regulatory system in the brain to control the activity of the neurons. And we still are just at the beginning of exploring.
0: I mean, it's like a whole different way to think about the brain. We think about the brain as signaling and acting in this one particular way, which is mediated by electrical signals. Right. But astrocytes are there, they're interacting with the neurons in a lot of different ways, but they've just kind of been ignored. And now we're really appreciating how critical they are to the entire function of the brain. And even this domain that we thought is like specific to neurons, which is this electrical signaling is influenced by astrocytes as well. So you're studying astrocytes, you're studying depth versus duration of non-REM sleep. So what's kind of the key question that you're setting out to address with this paper? There have been some really interesting works in the last, say, 10 years, inserting
1: astrocytes into the regulation of large populations of neurons and specifically potentially into sleep regulation. But never before had there been a study, and this is what we wanted to do, we wanted to dial up or dial down different aspects of the astrocyte activity in real time, and then see how sleep changed in the mouse. So the idea was, can we change astrocytes in, in these acute, fast ways? And does that change the sleep behavior? And then a sort of larger question that gets back to the heterogeneity issue of how sleep changes. Sleep is not in like one thing across the brain, We wanted to ask how local or global the effect was of changing the astrocyte activity.
0: So now that we have that background, I'd like to segue into the specifics of your study. First, with the discussion of the methods, because you use some very cool technology and methods. So the first thing that you needed to do for this study was to develop a way to measure astrocyte dynamics in living animals that are falling asleep naturally and waking Uh up naturally. So, how did you do that? <laughs> I think that sounds really difficult.
1: <laughs> so, what we what we do with these mice is we make something called a cranial window in the mouse's skull. So, this is what it sounds like: we drill a piece of the skull out and replace that piece with a piece of glass. And you know, it's it's a little more complicated than that, but it, it essentially the the mouse is okay with that. We can it lives for weeks or months after the surgery. And we can then watch what's happening in the brain. And now to actually watch what's happening, we have to make sure that the astrocytes are expressing some kind of fluorescent indicator. So we use a virus that infects the astrocytes and specifically makes them make this calcium sensor. So the sensor is really bright when there's a lot of calcium in the cell and very dim when there's very little. So we can watch the fluorescent fluctuations of these calcium sensors while the animal,
0: as you say, is naturally waking and sleeping. Could you just connect the dots on why calcium is important? Why is it calcium sensor specifically? No, this
1: is a really this is actually a really important question that I, I can answer, but I don't have the full answer because we still don't know all the answers. <laughs> so going back to what we said about neurons. We we understand the code that they signal with. So we understand their action potentials and fluorescent calcium sensors have been developed now over decades to study those neurons because when there are a lot of action potentials, there's an increase in calcium. So we and others have taken those tools that people who study neurons use and put them into astrocytes. Now, the calcium no longer corresponds to an action potential. As I told you, these they don't fire that. But it's been emerging that astrocytes display a really interesting dynamic calcium activity into different behavioral states, different sleep and wake.
0: So from these initial experiments, just trying to characterize what astrocytes are doing in the sleep-wake cycle, what were kind of some of the big patterns that you noticed? So yeah, this was super striking. This is the kind
1: of data that you dream about because often things in science are somewhat subtle, but this was very obvious. And what we saw was that when the animals were asleep, the astrocyte activity almost went down to nothing. When I say sleep here, we're just talking about non rem sleep. And then the animals woke up and were moving around and we're awake. And we saw a ton of calcium activity. So it was like this bimodal system, this sort of two different states of on and off. So neurons, they're not off when you're asleep. They're just in a very different pattern, as I described to you, these kind of slow waves. So this made us think that instead of like following neurons, that's like the dogma that astrocytes are listening in and then doing something after neurons. We're thinking maybe they're they're having a regulatory effect on neurons because if they show such different patterns of activity, then maybe they're doing something quite profound to regulate sleep and wake
0: right? The neurons are going through this synchronous firings that are characteristic of non-REM sleep. And if the idea in the field held that astrocytes were just kind of following along after neurons and responding to to neurons, then you would expect to see astrocytes also having kind of a synchronous signaling, but that's not what you saw. You saw something completely different. So then how did you determine whether this activity of the astrocytes, this kind of turning off of their signaling was influencing the activity of the neurons or vice versa.
1: So what I just described to you was just a correlation. We, we saw that the astrocytes changed relative to sleep and weight. But in, to ask the question of if they're actually regulating neuronal activity, we needed to manipulate them in really controlled ways so that we could see how then the neurons changed. So what we did was turn to a methodology called chemogenetics and specifically a methodology called DREDS. It's an acronym that stands for designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. It's a means by which you put a receptor in a cell, if you're an astrocyte, that normally would never be expressed by that cell. And it doesn't do anything when it's just sitting there. There's nothing in the brain that would make that receptor active. But only when you inject the animal with the agonist for that receptor with what activates it. So then they turn on in a very specific way. So we um, used two different classes of dreads that correspond to these two different kinds of GPCRs. And what we found is that when we activated one of these dread pathways, astrocytes increased sleep depth. So we saw more of these slow waves, or they were sort of larger amplitude big, slow wave, So it's as if you're sleeping deeper. And that was called, that was with a, what was called a GI, GPCR. But when we looked at how long the, the mice slept, they didn't change their duration. They weren't sleeping any longer, or any shorter. It was just that they were sleeping deeper. And then when we used the other dread, the GQ GPCR, we found the opposite, the inverse, that the GQ signaling in astrocytes changed sleep dur- duration. So they were sleeping longer or shorter. But their sleep depth was no different than normal. Mm -hmm. So this was exciting for two reasons. One, because we could individually change sleep depth and duration by manipulating the astrocyte activity. But also just that manipulating astrocyte activity at all could could change sleep because sleep has just been such the domain of neurons. And this really, within minutes, we saw a change in sleep.
0: I think this experimental design is really really clever because you know that astrocytes have all these different kinds of receptors, specifically these different kinds of GPCRs. And these GPCRs are a big class of receptors. There's lots of different kinds of them. Classic things like opioid receptors are GPCRs, things that respond to Adrenaline or GPCRs, all the neurotransmitters bind to GPCRs. But what kind of GPCR they are matters. And so you took two different classes of GPCRs and each one signals through the astrocyte in a different way and kind of leads to different downstream activities. And so you were able to turn on one type of GPCR and you saw an increase in sleep depth, and then you turned on another form of GPCR, and you saw an increase in sleep duration. And it's so neat that you're able to manipulate that signaling and see such clear results. So one question I have is, did you try other types of GPCR and just see no impact, or did you really just try these two and see this duality? because other that would be pretty amazing scientific luck.
1: <laughs> well the the other main class of GPCRs is is the GS class and we did not try the GS. And part of that is because I think a lot of the receptors that you just mentioned like adrenaline receptors they're mostly GQ receptors and they're really highly expressed on astrocytes. And I'm I'm just going to make another point first, which is that people think of like adrenaline acting on neurons, right? But if you look at expression of these, for some of these receptors, there's actually a lot more on astrocytes. Some of the things we think that GPCR activation is actually doing, because we just sort of assume it's on neurons, actually might not be the case for a whole range of things. So we did only try the GI and the GQ, GPCRs, and we sort of expected that maybe one would have effect if we were lucky and we expected the other one wouldn't, but it turned out that they both did. And they were these sort of interestingly separable effects too. And they had the other reason that we chose these two is because these two are known to activate calcium in astrocytes. They don't do the same, that kind of thing in neurons. So they sort of have their own code in astrocytes. And we thought it would be, we were just thinking of different ways to increase calcium. Like maybe if we do it this way, it'll do something. Or if we do it this way, it'll do something. But it ends up with this really kind of unexpected result, which is that calcium is increased in both of these cases, but they do very different things. So calcium is not calcium, it's not calcium. And then the other way to answer your question also about these two different pathways is yes, they're two separable pathways, but there are tons of GQ receptors and GI receptors. Now we need to figure out which of the receptors in our normal sleep are actually regulating these things. And that's a big question too.
0: What you've done is you've taken a synthetic GPCR and expressed it, but there's obviously a endogenous, a natural receptor that's regulating that. So Now it's a search to find that one. Right. And that's, that's really fascinating that... Activating both of these classes of GPCRs has this different effect that you can see using these, this DREAD system, but they both lead to an increase in calcium, but somehow from that increase in calcium lead to different impacts on the cell and different impacts, therefore, on the neurons, different impacts on the sleep. I think that really suggests like a very tantalizing kind of biological question of how, how, that, how that's possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine that the different spatiotemporal dynamics of those two different sort of originating Mm -hmm, calcium mm -hmm, events mm -hmm. are then affecting downstream molecules in different ways, and then leading to astrocyte function, astrocyte outputs that are different. And so that's another huge question for us
0: next. So you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about the question that this paper is asking, are the impacts of astrocytes local or are they do they have a more global reach to them? So how did you study that and what did you find when you looked at those impacts? So we'll take this
1: cranial set, cranial window setup that I just described to you, and we also have an electrode right near that window recording the sleep activity, the neuronal activity. Then we decided to put an electrode as far away in cortex, which is the kind of the part of the brain that we're in, as we could. So on the opposite side of the brain and all the way in the front, because we were measuring in the back. So we thought, oh, this is millimeters apart of mouse brain. That's a lot of mouse brain. What would happen if we activated those astrocytes only in this the back of the brain? What would happen in, to the sleep in the front of the brain? And The short answer is the similar kinds of sleep effects that we saw locally, we also saw in this electrode millimeters away in the brain. They were a little bit different in terms of the subclasses of slow wave activity that we saw. Slow wave activity can be broken down into two types, and one called delta is more related to forgetting, and one called slow oscillations is more related to memory consolidation. And we saw differences, like locally, we saw more of this kind of forgetting signal. And globally, we saw more of this memory signal. And so this then raises all kinds of questions for us and makes us think of experiments where we could test Different behaviors and memory um, when we manipulate the astrocytes and see if this affects them differently.
0: We talked about this this important synchronous firing in non-REM sleep, mm-hmm. and kind of the patterns of that synchronous firing can be characterized by a wave function. And so it, here, you're able to look how these waves changed when you manipulated the astrocytes, and you saw differences in the the types of waves that are associated with forgetting and the types of waves that are associated with remembering, which is such an A fascinating idea, thinking that you can manipulate the way that your brain consolidates memory by manipulating different receptors on astrocytes and like the different ways that you sleep. It's like one of those things where it's like, I know that sleep is related to memories, (laughs) but thinking about how that process can be manipulated by different processes in the brain, it just kind of unlocks like a whole new level of understanding of like what sleep is and why it's important. Yeah, that's how we're thinking of it. So now that we've talked about the results of your paper, the this really important role that astrocytes are playing in the brain and how they are regulating sleep depth and sleep duration through these distinct mechanisms, how does this inform our larger understanding of the importance of sleep or how sleep is regulated kind of on like a bigger scale?
1: Yeah. It makes me think about the drugs that we use, the pharmacology that's used to treat sleep and sleep dysfunction. And neurological and psychiatric diseases have a really complex and interesting relationship to sleep and that sometimes sleep can, sleep is often a symptom for neuropsychiatric diseases, but it can also be, a, it can also alleviate some, like sometimes sleep deprivation can help depression. Sometimes sleep sleep is a biomarker for things like Alzheimer's. And I think of all the the work going into understanding those diseases and understanding the pharmacology behind behind drugs that affect sleep and thinking those drugs, say, are working on, re- on receptors. It's, it's assumed that they're working on neuronal receptors, but maybe they're not. And maybe these, these things that we're trying to untangle in terms of these kinds of diseases and sleep would be really much better sort of finely understood if we understood how astrocytes were participating and which kinds of receptors these sort of drugs were acting on. So I think there's a lot of interplay here between neuropsychiatric diseases, pharmacology, and sleep, and then trying to get trying to get sort of astrocytes in that mix, I think could be a really important step.
0: I'm really interested in this idea of of you know studying astrocytes as a way to understand the brain better to develop better therapies. What do you think the kind of next steps for going from, you know, this paper to, you know, a practical application are?
1: I think one reason astrocytes have not been maybe looked at so much is that when you grow them in a dish or try to do high throughput things, like they stop looking like astrocytes and look like more like like generic cells. So I think the next step is to try to figure out like what a platform could be where you could do more high throughput testing of astrocytes in tissue, or maybe it's an organoid system, something where you can actually, you you maintain some very important aspects of the circuit so that we could study these rhythms, for example, these study sleep or study behaviors related to kind of the diseases we're thinking about, but also then get to the, the biology of the astrocytes.
0: In this paper, we've exclusively focused on the role of astrocytes in non-REM sleep, which is, as we mentioned before, sleep is not just one thing. So do you think that astrocytes also have a role to play in REM sleep, which is associated with dreaming?
1: Yes, I do. I think there there are indications from previous work that astrocytes are involved in, in REM sleep also. I think, though, what's even more interesting for us is to study how astrocytes are involved in wake states. And just like we're not in one state when we're asleep, we're not in one state when we're awake, we're paying attention to different things or sort of daydreaming or focusing. And a lot of these things are driven by the, like some of the neuromodulators you mentioned earlier, like adrenaline and astrocytes are, as I said, sort of chock full of receptors for these things. So we're also very interested in how astrocytes are regulating arousal and attention in
0: dynamically in wake states. So, From my vantage point as an outsider on neuroscience, Hmm. it seems like a field that's really driven by technology development and new tools leading to new insights. And we talked about this very cool cranial window to Photon, you know, and the dread receptors. So what are the big questions about sleep or astrocyte biology that you can't ask right now because you don't have like the, the technology to do it? I think I've been
1: talking so much about watching astrocytes work and thinking about the things that they're responding to. But I think we know a lot less about what they do, how they affect neurons and where those things occur. And I would love some more specific tools to understand how astrocytes are influencing the activity of neurons. So ways to image different molecules that they might be dynamically changing with really high resolution. Neuroscience is so driven by these kinds of innovation and astrocyte biologists have sort of been borrowing those tools that people who study neurons use and put them into astrocytes. But a specific tool that's to building that addresses the specific cell biology of these cells as compared to neurons and really tailoring them to this biology, I think will be
0: critical yeah it's like being a like younger sister like not just getting hand-me-downs but getting the clothes that actually fit and that you like exactly kira thank you so much for joining me on journal club today i had a lot of fun discussing this research with you thank you so much for having me and that's it for bioeats world this week bioeats world is hosted produced and edited by me lauren richardson with help from the A16Z bio team, Pavel Rivera and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network, which you can read more about at a16z.com forward slash pod network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more on how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.